Welcome to yet another episode of Shortcast Over Coffee. My guest today is Dr. Aruna Ramakrishnan. Aruna earned her PhD from the University of Minnesota and has an undergraduate degree in chemical engineering from IIT Bombay. She is the co-founder and CTO of the Boston-based startup Copernic Catalyst. Copernic Catalyst designs novel chemical catalysts to reduce the energy use and carbon footprint of bulk chemical reactions. This will be a two-part episode. Part one of this episode will unpack Aruna's journey from IIT Bombay to ExxonMobil. Part two of this episode will cover her journey from big oil to a climate tech entrepreneur. I had a lovely time talking to Aruna and hope you guys enjoyed too. Let's get on with the episode. I was working on the on the materials side of things, well, kind of, um, and it was amazing. Like everything was steel because there was no uh, perk to re- reduction reduction in weight, right? Unlike the aerospace mm-hmm. industry, so everything was uh, everything was steel, and it was just getting so monotonous. And I think that was probably one of the reasons why I quit. Um, but yeah, coming back to your uh, startup journey. I'm going to leave this completely open ended so that you know you can you can give us with as give us as much information as you can. Uh, how did you transition from uh, these working with this big chemical corporations to uh, to something that you do right now? Yeah, it was an interesting, uh, very interesting switch because they're literally polar opposites. Uh, so right now I'm in a company which ha- uh, which has like you know like. I can count the number of people on my hand. Uh, <laughs> so uh, it's a uh, it's a very it's a very small company, and uh, uh, basically everything is kind of up to me in a sense, right? Uh, so it, it it's very um it's very liberating. It's very empowering. Uh, it's also very scary because uh, you know mistakes that I make can have big consequences. And there's nowhere to hide, right? So it's uh, you. You got to face everything. It's it's just you. Uh, you you are the company. Um. So I uh my journey with startup started about a year back. Um. I so I finished working at Exxon Mobil early last year. I quit and I I moved to Boston. Um. So I was in New Jersey, if you remember, with Exxon Mobil. And I moved to Boston. Boston is a really good place for um all. All of, all of these climate tech or tough tech as they call it uh, problems it has a number of universities you know there's MIT Tufts Harvard uh, a lot of great universities here very good uh, I, it's a very young place there's a lot of students and there's this great energy and vibe uh, the whole Boston and Cambridge area and um, there's a lot of ideas that come out of the universities that are spun out into companies and um, uh, this is very different from what it used to be, you know, a few decades back. Uh, and more and more, you know, young students and or students in grad school um, are looking to make enterprises and not just work for another company. So a lot, you know, I can see the change in mindset um, and people taking bold steps with, and you know, people taking risks um, because there, a lot of reasons. They a lot of lot of times they are. Um, I think they're just driven by the the desire to make an impact on climate. You see with the newer generations, right? They're, they're much more tuned into the climate crisis and much more, um, I'd say, hungrier to find a solution soon. So that's all that is really awesome to see. And um, it, you know, I'm very glad I'm here because it gives me an ability to uh, I, I know, tap into that talent, tap into that energy. Uh, that It's very important to have the right ecosystem around you because if you're just alone in... You know, without these kind of um, 
people around you or this you know, the supportive environment around you then it's very easy to give up um so that's that's helped a lot just the location has helped me was your move um, also driven by this uh, this reason that hey boston so, is the yeah but it was largely driven by this reason um and actually my husband also was he's also he's an investor on the climate side he's an investor in climate tech so we have a very unique um, mix in our family one one person who's looking at different technologies and trying to invest and one person who's actually developing a technology uh, so we have this investor operator kind of perspective and we like to share our perspectives with each other i kind of know what dinner table conversations are like <laughs> <laughs> so so yeah so um so i moved to boston after exxon mobil and um i actually met my uh, co-founder for copernic whose, whose name is jacob gross um i met him the year before that when i was still at exxon mobil um through one of our investors the engine uh, it's a it's a fund that was spun out of mit i don't know if you've heard of them um but uh, they introduced us he was looking for a co-founder at the time and um and so the two of us connected and then um you know, we decided we'll make a team and uh, um, and take Copernic ahead. Well, what got you excited? Uh, you know, I, I see these uh, LinkedIn posts or, you know, uh, posts on Indeed that, hey, we, are, we want to do a, uh, we want to have a co-founder join our team. Uh, but, you know, being a co-founder is very different from being just an employee. You know, like you mentioned, there's so much yeah. responsibility and whatnot. But, but what got you excited to join Copernic versus some something else. Yeah, uh, so I think number one, uh, to be a co-founder, it's um, it's got to be a you've got to have a very deep belief system. Uh, without that, you cannot really survive to to have this kind of a role. Um, you've got to have almost this you know unreasonable belief in your idea, and um, at least at this really really deep drive that um, uh, survives different uh, problems right that will come along the way and so for me this drive was all about making an impact on climate and I'd seen enough at ExxonMobil um, to know how large corporations work and I think two reasons right one is um, I thought in a smaller setup I could bring my ideas to fruition and um, without all of the roadblocks and the bureaucracy of a large uh, corporation. Um, that's definitely one one aspect. And the second is um, I had learned enough about scale up and got a lot of real world experience through my experiences at Praxair and ExxonMobil that um, I felt confident enough to be able to work in this kind of a subject. Right. So if, if I were coming right after, out of grad school, I think I would not be that confident. I would, you know, it, it would I, I would be looking at things in a very different way. Maybe I'll put it that way. Um, what I realized was in the startup space, a lot of the founders and and we need we need lots of founders, but a lot of them are very academic. They come straight out of their PhD or after their masters with a uh, with a really good scientific idea, but with very little clue of how to scale that up or how to make it work. So I thought there was a unique opportunity for me over here with my you know seven years or so of industrial experience to make a real impact and to drive a change in the startup world that that was real um and um, so for, for these reasons you know the, i was looking for an opportunity to uh, work on a meaningful problem and why i liked uh, copernic it, it's because of 
one thing that I mentioned earlier, which is energy transition isn't something where you drop you, know, you, you drop all the technologies that you currently have, like a hot potato and jump to something new. Um, you need to be very thoughtful and deliberate about how to make this transition. And a big part of this is using existing assets to lower their carbon emissions or to make them carbon free, right? Obviously you want to make them carbon free if you can, if you cannot, you want to cut the emissions as much as possible. So at Copernic, what we're doing is we're developing catalysts. Um, and, uh, you know, as a refresher, a catalyst is a material that helps to accelerate a chemical reaction. Um, so, you know, something that it also helps, helps to reduce the energy requirement for the reaction, the temperature and pressure for the reaction, which in turn, you know, if, if you're, if you need less energy, it means probably you need smaller reactors or thinner reactors. You mean you need, um, you need to burn less oil and gas if you're using oil and gas. Um, and it just makes the overall process cheaper as well, right? If to make it more energy efficient. Um, so we are developing better catalysts for making chemicals. That's our high level thesis. But what's different about us is the catalysts that we are developing are all compatible with the existing infrastructure or the existing steel on the ground. So in other words, um, if I am the head of a large chemical corporation and uh, Copernic comes to me with this new catalyst that can reduce my energy requirements and um, without having to necessarily change all the different elements of the process without ha having to reconfigure the field steel on the ground, it's it's a much lower barrier for me to say yes to that idea, right? And um, uh, this is this is a challenge that these large large corporations face, which is um, what makes sustainability sense sometimes does not make business sense, and so what we are trying to do over here is to give a solution that helps your business, brings costs down, but also brings your emissions down and has a sustainability impact. Um, so you don't have to trade off one for the other, right? So, so for example, you don't have to go, um, you don't have to buy very expensive renewable energy to bring down your carbon footprint. But you know, at, at the end, if you look at your um, profit and loss statement, your, your balance sheet may look, not look that profitable to you. Um, so this was this was what attracted me to it, right? The uh, the ability to make it um, to turn to make a business more sustainable at the same time more profitable, uh, because we live in a capitalist economy, right? We you cannot expect everyone to be altruistic and say that I will sacrifice my profits to be low carbon or sustainable. Um, that that's an ideal world. I would love it if people were that way, but that's that's just not how the way works. So. Hopefully in the future with a carbon tax and, you know, with um, with people being made to pay the price for carbon or, or pay the price for emissions that, you know, that gap will reduce and um, that will, there will be a natural drive towards sustainable solutions. But where we stand today, there's that incentive is just not high enough. So there's a lot of talk and a lot of research and this and that, but when you see how things are implemented at the end of the day, it has to be driven by a business decision. And the business decision is driven by, you know, by numbers. Is, is your enterprise going to be profitable or not? And, um, you know, this is just this, 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 this conundrum. This is what is holding up these large oil and gas companies and these chemicals companies. And this is why we're not seeing the energy transition as fast as it should be. Yeah, I think, I think you bridge a really 
really good gap here because you know like you mentioned you know big corporations have this incredible amount of uh, real estate uh, not just real estate but just you know investment uh, on the on the ground and then you know for them to cut down or, or make a radical shift in technology is going to take a lot of research money so that's where that's where Copernic comes in and be is like you know keeping what you have we are going to make a significant impact in your carbon uh, carbon footprint uh, by reducing it so that that i mean no wonder it got it got you excited uh, but uh, but coming back to uh, uh, coming back to your startup you know there are different kinds of startups right startups that are you know simply knocking off someone else's idea uh, startups that are uh, you know just working on on the software space where infrastructure is all already there and then you know uh, they just implement like a mm-hmm. you know a little bit of a delta to to make things better but yours is a core technology company like a core chemical technology company yeah how how difficult was it to uh, you know develop a technology number one and number two do you have to develop new technology to cater to a different customer yeah so um, maybe i should explain what we do a little more at copernic um so what we do is we i said we make catalysts right we make these new materials um but how how is it different from how things have been so far right in the world so typically scientists in the industry have um have relied on trial and error to make um to discover materials so to discover catalysts let me maybe it's easier to for me to take an example uh, examples always make things real so the first problem we are solving for in copernic is the haber bosch process to make ammonia i don't know if you remember your high school chemistry uh, probably sounds familiar haber bosch uh, so it's, it's basically um it was something that was developed uh, you know more than 100 years back by haber and bosch you know two scientists one scientist and one engineer actually um it's uh, it uses an iron oxide catalyst and brings together nitrogen and hydrogen to make ammonia ammonia is a very simple molecule nh3 even you know you don't you don't need to be a chemist to understand what it has um but the problem with this is nitrogen and hydrogen are quite stable molecules and to bring them together break the bonds and make this ammonia molecule takes a lot of energy so you know just to give you a sense 500 degrees celsius um that's high, you know somewhere around there is how hot it needs to be and um, 200 atmospheres so a pressure that is 200 times the atmospheric pressure so under these extreme conditions you can bring the, bring these molecules together uh, with the iron oxide catalyst um and this process hasn't changed for about a century and there's two reasons for it one is the catalyst is very cheap iron oxide is basically iron ore you dig it out of the earth and you can use it as a catalyst um and the second reason is uh, that this this is very the catalyst is compatible with fossil fuel feedstocks um so you know the hydrogen that goes into ammonia comes actually from fossil fuels all around the world today uh, so natural gas is taken and it is converted to hydrogen so it's actually very dirty hydrogen and you know getting that hydrogen out emits a lot of co2 into the atmosphere uh, in addition to that making the ammonia at these high temperature and pressure conditions lot of energy lot of co2 emissions so um this catalyst hasn't really changed a lot over over you know the last century or century and a half um it, it it's very interesting to you to know that it took a few decades to actually discover this catalyst 
And the way this catalyst was discovered was just through trial and error, through hundreds, I think 20,000 experiments. There's an interesting book. It's called The Alchemy of Air. If anyone is interested in ammonia, it's, I know it sounds very dry, but the book is very interesting. I'll link it in the show so notes. Yeah, yeah. So if you're interested um, in the history of ammonia, ammonia is it's a very interesting molecule. We can talk about it later. Uh, that that book provides a historical perspective and how the process was developed and a very you know, very it's a very filmy kind of story of how Haber and Bosch met and uh, and scaled up the uh, uh, this ammonia production. You just gave me an idea for a solo episode. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it's a great story. Yeah, so definitely read that book. Um, but again, going back to what Copernic does, right? This this. This I just give you one example of how it took so long to define this catalyst. And for all of the chemicals that we make in the industry today, most of the catalyst development is done through trial and error. You know, a scientist sitting in a lab will have an intuition, and that intuition is worth something, right? Because it's based upon their you know a career of experience. And so, based on intuition, people make materials and they test it in the lab. They see how does it work, does it how well does it work, and then they optimize it a little bit here, a little bit there. Um, but all done experimentally. So hundreds and, you know, I would say hundreds and thousands of hours and tens and thousands of uh, experiments to get to something that works. And um, what we're doing at Copernic is we are cutting out all of this trial and error. We're relying on computation to actually simulate the chemistry and simulate this material at a very fundamental level using density functional theory. And don't have to get into details on that, but that it suffices to say that we can, from a very fundamental um, level, uh, from physics-based models, basically, we, at an atomistic scale, we're able to see how the material, um, what it, we can, we're able to put different materials into our model, and we're able to screen through a large set of materials to see which material will have the highest potential for, uh, for being a catalyst. And so this cuts out a lot of the development that the trial and error phase. And so it compresses, you know, decades of research or, you know, 50 to 100 years of research into just one year of research or one to 10 years of research. So you get like a 10x to 100x um, increase in speed for innovation through this computational approach. And so we're, um, right now we've applied it to ammonia, we've discovered a catalyst. Um, and so we're, we're really proud of that because the, it's a breakthrough the last hundred years, nobody has discovered something that can beat the iron oxide catalyst, but we, we've done that. And, um, and so now we're in the process of developing it to a level where we can start scaling it up. So we're at that, right at that cusp of discovery and scale up. Um, and, and I'm excited about that too, because that's, that's a, that's a, playground where I know how to play, right? The scale up through my experience. Um, and so um, what we are, our vision is really to apply our computational approach to uh, the entire chemical industry, uh, to a lot of these high emission chemicals and um, bring down the emissions and the, um, make them more sustainable, basically. And uh, just to give you a sense, right? The world emits maybe 50 billion tons of CO2 per year. And uh, of that, about um, you know, about two and a half tons of CO two of the fifty billion ton tons just comes from making chemicals, and then um, in addition to this, um, you know, ammonia is uh, people are interested in ammonia as a shipping fuel. It actually it has a lot of energy in it that, and it doesn't have carbon in it, right? NH three, so you can potentially burn ammonia, use it as a fuel. Uh, make it at large scales to be usable as a fuel and um and then that that allows you to decarbonize the shipping industry 
Um, there's a lot of interest in the shipping sector. Shipping produces 3% of the world's emissions. If you, I don't know if you're aware of that, but uh, that's 3% is again a large number uh, for you know just transporting goods across the world. That's how much energy it takes. Um, so again, there's potential for another 3% over there. And so you know everything together, we think we can target like 5 to 10% of global emissions um, simply through development of catalysts. So, um, you know, all of this got me very excited, right? The scale of impact that you could have, um, being able to use my skill set for something that's so meaningful. And um, it's, it, that intrinsic driver is, um, like, like I mentioned earlier, um, it became very apparent that this is a very, it's a sweet spot for high impact, a place where I can make a high impact, where I can be a useful contributor and um, maybe bring my unique set of, uh, skills and um, it, it, it was it was very odd actually because um, at the time where I was making this decision of what I should do next after ExxonMobil and I knew I, I could not stay with the oil and gas company longer I it was I think it was chipping away at my conscience um, I was you know I was trying to make uh, I was trying to be on the emissions mitigation side and do whatever I could I thought with an oil and gas company with the scale and resources that they have I could make an impact but it was just not fast enough for me what the company was doing. So I was not happy. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and so when I, as I was looking around for things to do, um, when this opportunity came, it got me really excited. Um, and um, in my grad school, if you remember, I did purely experimental work in the beginning. I got disillusioned by it and I went into something more computational. So for me, it, it all seemed to come together in, in a way like my life's journey seemed to be pointing towards, you know, I, I should go here because um, I know the pitfalls of slow doing slow R&D. You know, we need to do research quickly. We need to solve problems quickly, right? That's how we will, otherwise we will just exacerbate the climate crisis. Um, so um, having, because I, I, you know, I'd been through that, uh, the grad school experience of disliking trial and error and wanting to apply computational and systematic uh, development methods, I, I could see the, I could see that uh, everything was kind of converging towards this, where um, if the, the methodology that we are deploying at Copernic, the computationally driven methodology, um, I think that that solves a lot of problems that the chemical industry has. Um, again, things are very slow in this sector. Again, going back to what we discussed earlier, right? Change is slow. Innovation is slow. Everything is so slow moving. And the problem is that we need the sector to move fast. We need the sector to make changes fast because of the amount of emissions that it contributes on a yearly basis to, to the atmosphere. Um, so what we're doing at Copernic does that. We have been able to accelerate the pace of innovation. We're able to accelerate that discovery and then um, and then apply it in a way where we don't waste the assets that are already on the ground. Mm. Yeah, you know, I, I was having this conversation with uh, economist uh, Ajay Shah earlier and uh, we, we were touching a bit about climate, uh, climate sciences and, and global warming in general. Uh, you you are a co-founder and you you run a company with 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 one of your colleagues and you know, hiring is such an important task um, from 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 a startup standpoint. How difficult has it been to bridge the gap between the skill set that you require versus the skill set that's available in the market? And and the reason why yeah. I'm asking this question is 
everyone is you know driven towards data science and and uh, computer science i mean rightly so because you know it it give, gives you a good life good income uh, and and what not but then you know with this tons of startups in the in the climate tech space mm-hmm. not a lot of people are taking up an atmospheric science degree or a chemical engineering degree yeah and has that been one of the reasons why this thing has been slow and what are the challenges that you have faced uh, with with the recruiting skill set uh, yeah. yeah good question so i think first um, the question about is hiring difficult and is it slow um hiring is difficult but i think more and more what we're seeing is that people with um, degrees in engineering and science um, they do want to make an impact on the climate um uh, and and they're looking for ways to do so uh, when they graduate so i think the motivation um and the just the new generation that's graduating it's it's more aligned with what um uh, with what the what we need in the startup world and and that's really great um so that's that's one set subset of people that we hire the second set which i think is often overlooked is experienced hires so people like me right or people like maybe even with a whole career of experience maybe even people that have retired from these industries but want to use their skills towards something meaningful these are just uh, they're amazing people to tap into because they can reduce your learning curve so much and um, they just bring their vast experience knowledge and they you know they just they'll get things done fast they will mentor the young uh, younger or the newer incoming hires and uh, they just create that balance in your company they speed up the process right pretty they much do. with their yeah, experience yeah. yeah yeah and and especially i would say people that are retired who don't have anything see i i wouldn't blame everyone in the um i wouldn't blame anyone for wanting to work or continue to work at an oil and gas company or a chemicals company or one of these high emission sectors because uh, everyone has a family to take care of they have mouths to feed and if that's what they are trained for and that's what they've done it's hard to tell people that they should change right um so very few people can really make that change and um but and i think people that are retired um and, and there's a lot of them that um, that we can tap into the pe- mm. sitting here in the climate ecosystem and so i've been trying to do that and uh, we actually work with a couple of uh, uh, retired folks who who actually did not really want to retire and they wanted to start up something a little enterprise of their own so they consult with us and it's been invaluable for us um so if you cannot find the right skill set in you know one person you can go and find um people that have had experience and use them as consultants and use all of their knowledge to bridge the gap Uh, there's definitely a gap right so if you hire if you only only hiring um, you know kids that are straight out of undergrad or straight, even even straight out of grad school uh, that's not sufficient uh, you, you really need that expertise and you need to bring it in either in the form of a hire or um, in another way yeah great you are reaching out to people who have who are retired you know that's that's such an untapped potential i i never thought about it i mean i'm aware of the fact that people work as consultants even after retirement and you know professors take sabbatical and and work for industry and they're wonderful people because they want to help so they they've had a successful career most of them and you know they've worked for a large corporation now they're tasting freedom and they want to do things and most of these uh, you know scientists and engineers they they do what they do because they love it they have an intrinsic love for the subject and um, so it's it's a lot of fun to engage with them they they don't have any other hidden agendas or you know other motivations and so they 
they really they're in it because they enjoy doing it um so it's it that that workforce or that um that subset of workforce which we don't really um very often we forget about that subset of workforce but it's invaluable yeah yeah and, and you touched on boston being this uh, new startup hub for climate tech uh you know obviously people can look this up on google but what from with from your experience what has been a few of the areas that uh, some of the upcoming startups are working on in boston oh so many areas um so there's a whole lot of startups um that are working on uh, biotech so biological um uh, bio related for a lack of a better word so uh, you know finding finding uh, ways to cure cancer um, oh no climate tech I meant oh, climate specifically tech. on climate. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. I was thinking, yeah. So there's a lot of there's a lot of jargon in this field. So there's there's tough tech, which is uh, basically anything that's not software related that requires investment and requires a lot of R and D, and so a lot of this bio stuff comes as a part of it, right? And then there's also climate tech, which is um, mostly focused right now on reducing emissions. And um, here there can be more like chemistry focused startups like mine. Mm. or there can be startups that um that are trying to improve the soil quality and um you know make an impact on agriculture and those kinds of sectors which also contribute a lot towards climate change um so for example companies that uh, focus on um making reviving that's this one company i know that revives barren lands and tries to do afforestation um it's um, you know and, and in, in return for carbon credits and uh, that's that's a growing field i see more and more companies getting into this um there's companies that do like um uh, like aerial surveillance so to, you can do um you can if you have a background in for example developing drones and things like that then you can do surveillance and um and figure out you know what what kind of um, forest density is there in different parts of the world or uh, what kind of potential there is to develop different different uh, barren regions to uh, make them more uh, rich in uh, in um, in forests or in trees there is um uh, this this drone technology is catching on actually i see a lot of companies getting into it um even to detect methane leaks right so there's in different oil and gas um, wells around around the world there can be leakages which contribute a substantial amount of greenhouse gas emissions and again um, aerial maps satellite imaging and things like that to detect leaks um, or you know um, at a more um, engineering level sometimes even like sensors that can help oil and gas companies to detect leaks in wells um, things like this are uh, i've seen startups grow quite a bit um and then there's food right there's if you think about climate right i think very often we get stuck up we get hung up on oil and gas and just transportation and what your car emits into the atmosphere but it's you know there's this basic stuff like the food that you eat and um you're probably aware right that for example eating uh, a vegetarian diet versus a, a meat heavy diet there's so much of a difference in the carbon impact that you can have just by changing your diet and so um the companies like uh, you, you obviously you've heard of the impossible burger and uh, uh those kinds of meat alternatives um that that's that's one whole area where there's a lot of activity um there's uh, there's actually companies that are using uh, mushrooms they they're growing fungus in a certain way to make uh 
different kinds of foods yeah i actually i actually interviewed a, a michelin star chef based out of san francisco called uh, uh, srijit gopinathan and he has invested uh, or he's like the the consulting chef for uh, uh, for for a company called eat mamu and and they are working on fungal based foods like like mushrooms and i think it's a, it's yeah. a very exciting space yeah uh, it is and and actually it, this food space itself has such a tremendous impact i don't know people don't talk about uh, i think about it as much as they should for uh, from the point of view of climate i think for health reasons there's a lot of discussion from the climate uh, perspective there's some discussion but i think it's it's not proportionate to how high an impact food has on climate and agriculture has on climate um there is uh, yeah there's there's just so much activity I was I was trying to I was actually I had another example in my mind which I'm yeah there, there is actually a drone uh, I you see this is the point uh, this is the thing right I I I forget names but there there is this interesting drone company uh, I I think based out of uh, California that what it what they do is they just take seeds and they drop it from the drone like randomly and uh, they they made some interesting calculation that you know even if 10% of the seeds um, grow into becoming trees uh, or whatever it, it still is going to uh, you know do some sort of uh, uh, you know re replenishment of, of yeah. yeah yeah replen replenishment of the forest so they just take a bag of uh, <laughs> bag of seeds and they just drop it at random places uh, yeah. expecting some some to grow so yeah. so drone and climate change is is an interesting space to oh i i the example came back to me so there is a food wastage if you are aware of uh, this if you look at the numbers it's actually quite shocking like the be between production and consumption we waste like more than half of the food in that in that chain yeah and um, i think it's it's actually it's actually 60% or 70% goes to waste yeah and that's that's another big yeah i think i, I actually reached out to those guys I, i we may be probably talking about the same guys but but the company is called guac i think guac incorporated uh or maybe there are multiple who knows but um, they actually went through like the y combinator uh, mm -hmm. process and uh, th they are doing some incredible work uh, it's founded by a couple of young uh, young people i think 23 and 22 years of age uh, uh, remarkable work i mean i just i just hope they grow uh, but yeah food wastage is is huge and i think i mean for me personally i have to blame it on the big box big stores like costco and and sam's club the membership stores they just uh, like you walk into them and you just buy so much and and most of it ends up being waste if you're if you're like a you small family you, you really have to be very careful about how you're using uh, when you when you buy in bulk yeah, yeah it's it's i find it much better to just buy more frequently and consume exactly exactly whatever delta you pay uh, is uh, is what you don't waste i think yeah. uh, you're doing yourself a favor and you're doing the environment a favor so yeah. yeah and i think agriculture and food you you touched on an interesting point because like i i feel like climate change i mean i wouldn't say climate change but man's intervention sort of with the nature started when large scale agriculture started right so that was that's that's also one of the huge biggest contributors for climate change you know acres and acres of land uh, but uh, but yeah a lot of players coming in that space um you know coming back to uh, coming back to the startup uh, how difficult was it to uh, convince you know venture capitalists uh, for money and 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 what is the space looking like you know climate tech is growing bigger day by day 
uh, and uh, are there a lot of venture capitalists interested in investing in such field? Tell me more about the space. Yeah, yeah. So I think maybe a decade back, it was harder to find money for um, these kind of you know climate technologies. The main reason being that these are what is this? It requires what is called patient capital, right? So when um, VCs invest, they typically have an expectation that they'll make a return on investment in a certain number of years, right? And and typically it's been, you know, a couple of years and not really more than two years or three years. They, they want to see a return on investment. Um, whereas when you're doing things that are more hardware focused, like what we do, um, which require a lot of capital, um, it requires time for research and development. Trust. It requires trust. It, that's, why, that's why it's called patient capital. It, it, maybe it should call trusting. It should be called trusting capital as well. Uh, there's a the the time frames increase. They increase to five years, ten years, sometimes even more. Right. So, if, for example, there's a company working on nuclear fusion. Um, if you if you've heard of, um, it's one of um, the portfolio companies, Common, Commonwealth Fusion. They received a lot of funding. Right? They received a billion dollars in VC capital recently. And uh, I'd say the situation today is a lot better than it was a decade or two decades back. Um, and it's if you have a good idea and if you have the right team, um, there's different ways to get funding. One is either you can you can definitely approach VCs. VC money is the most expensive way to fund your company. If you're able to get government grants, that's a really good way to, um, at least in the early stages, to uh, get some free money from the government to develop your idea, at least to a stage where it's prototyped. What do you mean by expensive way to fund your startup? Because they take a lot of equity from you, right? Uh, venture capitalists would give you money, but also take a lot of equity. Um, and so at a very early stage to completely be reliant on venture money, it's uh, it eats into your equity, basically. And it's... Um, you know, every VC is different, right? But some VCs are amazing and very supportive. Some VCs tend to be like sharks, right? So you have to be very careful in this environment um, and work with the right kinds of VCs. We are, we are very lucky. We have two really great investors. Um, and I think it helps that one of them was uh, is based out of MIT because they understand technology very well. Um, so having VCs that understand technology well versus um, purely financial VCs that are just looking for a return on investment, um, I think financial VCs can also have a place, but it cannot be purely financial VCs for, for these tough tech kind of uh, problems. Um, so, and I've seen that more and more people with, um, with technical acumen are getting into investing with the goal of driving the money towards the right areas. Um, because if you think of it from an investor's point of view too, they, you know, it's, it's, it's tough for them because they you need a certain depth of uh, understanding and familiarity with the space to pick the right ideas to fund right because there's a lot of you know fluffy ideas out there that don't really have any weight and um, it's easy to fool you know put on a show and fool your uh, investors if they don't have the right uh, background but um, but I think that's one thing that is changing now, which is we're seeing more and more technical um, backgrounds in the investing side. Um, I think um, if you remember the last uh, clean tech boom that happened around 20, uh, 2008 to 2011 or 12, um, there was a big boom then and there was a lot of hype around clean tech. 
um and biofuels and things like that uh, but you know, it was a boom and a bust and a lot of vcs lost money and so that left left a really bad taste in the in many investors mouths and um, and so there was you know i think the next between 2010 and 2020 there was a bit of a or maybe 2015 to 16 people kind of stayed away from clean tech but i think slowly now it's come back um with so with with some caution right so people are always cautious um and i think there's different types of investors like i said um the more technical investors sometimes the investors are also parts of companies so they're called cvcs um and and these companies um typically are like you know maybe exxon mobil or shell or one of these companies that has a reason to think about climate right because their core business may be polluting or um or for other reasons even companies like amazon um so they are called strategic investors so what these investors are looking for is for um, companies that have interesting ideas that align well with their own company strategy with the idea probably that they would want to acquire this smaller company at some point of time um and these are also they can be interesting to work with because again they bring a lot of knowledge and expertise uh, which a financial vc cannot bring so i'm seeing a lot of growth and in interest from strategic investors um because uh, you know the world is demanding more and more accountability from uh, large corporations and so these large corporations are on the lookout for good ideas um so, so i think funding can come from a number of these sources yeah um, i think it's also important to have young vcs uh, come into the space because like you said um, you know it's 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 a waiting game it you know you need to be patient because mm-hmm. you know vcs want quick quick return uh, of their money right so let's say if something is going to take 5 years or 10 years um, a lot of them who are who are on the later stages of their career may may, may not even be around so it's important yeah. to maybe maybe if not young vcs maybe people vcs who are more gen- generous and like long term or you know uh, they have a vision uh, sort of you know that that that's probably probably more important to get funding in this stage yeah yeah and that that is it's there it's increasing I, it was definitely um, much harder to get funding for you know if i if i took a pernix idea for funding maybe 5 to 10 years back it would be much harder than it is now uh we also have a large grant from the department of energy um again the government <laughs> depends on whose administration it is again right because funding from the government depends on politics and sometimes that's you know this is it's just hard to um it's out of your control but typically the department of energy um and you know there's the department of agriculture department of defense all of these different sectors um but at least with the current administration there's a lot of focus on mitigating climate change and so they have uh, government money available to fund ideas and so you got you can you know if if uh, just as a piece of advice to if there's anyone listening who wants to uh, look into ways to fund a, an early stage company a grant is a great way um it takes effort to put a good grant application together but um it's really worth it because it, it at the end of the day it's free money and uh, you know you 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 also get assigned a program manager from the department of energy and often these people have you know their their experience and they have good insights and they can actually help mm. you're back to what you dreaded the most writing grants <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, yeah i mean i like you said you know it's 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 um i think i think like you said it's free money but i think uh, a lot of responsibility and also um like 
when you're free to do, you also get that flexibility to explore different areas and who knows, maybe come up with, uh, come up with a better solution. So, so I think uh, that's, that's great. So um, uh, Aruna, what are the future plans for uh, Copper Nick? Uh, I know you touched upon uh, ammonia and a bit about Catalyst, but uh, uh, what are your probably two year, three year plans? Would love to know. Yeah, so um, it's very interesting. In a startup, everything changes so fast that maybe the, answer I, um, maybe the answer I'm giving you today may not hold uh, like, you know, three to six months from now. <laughs> but yeah. uh, that's something that, that I've come to appreciate in my last year of working as a, as a founder. Uh, but right now we have uh, proven out our computational models. So that's, it's an awesome first step for us um, because, you know, that, that was the bedrock of our thesis. Um, and so we've already discovered a new material at the lab scale, which can be a great catalyst uh, compared to what, what is out there. Um, the next couple of years will be all about scaling up. And um, so going from, basically we make like, a, this material is um, a couple of grams in a little vial. You can see it in our, I wish I was in the lab, I could show you, but um, that's the scale at which we are right now, right? It's a very teeny tiny scale. And we need tons of this material um, to actually be used at, at the, um, at a full blown commercial scale. So going from the gram to the ton scale, it's not, um, it's not a simple task. So there'll be uh, many milestones along the way, um, different pilot plant demonstrations. We have to convince customers that our catalyst is, it holds performance, it is stable. Um, so we have to do, it takes time, right? So we have to run this for many months or even up to a year and show that it's, it doesn't degrade and things like that. So, um, it's a conservative industry, I would say, where people are averse to making a change. And so anything and everything that you can do to mitigate risk and show that, uh, you know, just stress test your product under different conditions and show that it's really good um, and really stable and robust, that, that's absolutely critical to winning customers and getting your product out into the field. And so that's going to be our focus to scale up and then basically stress test the hell out of the catalyst. And, uh, you know, so that this is tested under conditions that are way beyond what you might see in, uh, in real life. And um, that's how you, you, you can convince customers to adopt your product. Yeah, that's excellent because I think you came uh, into the company at the right time because this whole scaling up process, like you said, is one of your uh, passions, right? You, you really feel passionate about, you know, scaling up things and, and making, making a company grow or a project grow. So I think, I think you're in the right place at the right time and uh, much needed. I think um, you are bridging a significant gap with your company, uh, which is, you know, instead of making a radical shift, uh, this is very important. Uh, and, and also, you know, sort of, is a, a bridge between uh, making economic sense, but at the same time, make, uh, uh, make, make sense from a climate climate perspective so um, thank you so much Aruna for being on the podcast I think uh, this is going to be awesome I think I, I think listeners are going to get a lot from it I gained a lot from it you know I had no idea about um, ammonia being used as a fuel and it's in incredible how much I get to learn as a person uh, by talking to people from uh, from diverse fields and and interests so um yeah, if, if no one gets anything out of it, I got a lot of it, a uh, lot out of it. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, of course. Thanks, Bala.